the rest of us. We're going to be in John chapter 6, and uh, if you want to open there right now, you can do so. It's a long chapter today. We're going to buckle up. We better begin with prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the joy it is to be together in this, your house. It's a big deal to come together for worship on Sunday morning. It's special to be with your people. It's special to be with our spiritual family and worship together amidst all of our differences. There is a glorious beauty in the unity that we have amidst our diversity here, and we give you praise for it. What a joy it is to worship together today. Thank you for the music that we got to worship with, and thank you for the power of your word. We ask, God, that your word would teach us, that you would help us to apply it, that we would live out your word as we interact with each other today at church, as we seek to bless those perhaps we don't know and reach out to someone who's new here. We ask you to be our light, to be our guide in all that we say and do. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we are a part of a movement of churches called the EFCA, and the EFCA does a quarterly magazine. It used to be a printed magazine. Now it's a digital one, and I'll never forget this quarterly magazine that they published about 10 years ago as it's described well much of what I've seen as a pastor. It's this picture of a little boy who is waiting to receive medicine from his mom. And as you can imagine, a six, seven-year-old boy, he had a very squeamish look on his face. No, don't give me that medicine as mom is coming down with the tablespoon. Have you seen that, moms? So he's got this squeamish look on his face, and next to that is this caption on the cover of the magazine that says, theology, colon, good medicine, question mark. And that describes well the way a lot of us think about theology. Like, really? Do I have to? Do I have to take that in? Is it really good medicine? It feels a little bit bitter. I don't like the way it tastes. And at least as far as I can tell, many, many people really don't want anything to do with theology. Even today, it seems, there are many Christians that don't want much of anything to do with theology. They want the the teachings of Jesus. They want the healings and the compassion of Jesus. But they don't really care for the theology of Jesus. And in one sense, I get that because theology has been responsible for a lot of bitter disputes over the centuries particularly when theology is done wrong without graciousness and without love, it's been responsible for a lot of divisiveness even in the church across the centuries. But did you know that Jesus, among other things, is a theologian? And Jesus really liked theology. And he taught on theology all the time. You cannot miss it as you read the four biographies of Jesus. He is a theologian who gets into it. And this morning, as we get into John chapter 6, we're going to see one of his most theological passages. And uh, I hope it would be good medicine for you as we process through. We may not like the taste initially, but it helps us to get better in the end. I'm going to teach theology this morning And I hope it's beneficial as we seek to understand Jesus' teaching today. Uh, The chapter opens with a little boy 
and you know this story. You got a little boy who's got five little barley loaves and two small fish. And perhaps he and his family are out for a picnic, and they are amongst the throngs of people that have come to follow Jesus. And there's 5,000 men who are following Jesus on this hillside outside of the Sea of Galilee. And there are probably at least that number of women and children following as well. Maybe 10 to, th- 10 to 15,000 people following. And here's this little boy who's going out for a picnic. And Jesus sees the, this boy and he sees the crowds. And he sees that people are starting to get hungry. And the disciples are grumbling to Jesus that people are starting to get hum- hungry. And what do we do? And Andrew, one of the disciples, turns to Jesus and says, I found this little boy who has this picnic lunch, this backpack full of five loaves and two fish. Will this do to feed the crowd of 10 to 15,000 people? And you probably remember the rest of the story. Jesus says, yeah, that'll do. And he has him sit down on the grass on a hillside, and he takes those five loaves and those two little fish, and he transforms it into enough to feed an entire stadium. And we pick up the story there in verses 14 and 15, as he feeds all these people, and a growing number of people are following him, here's what happens. After the people saw the sign, Jesus performed this miraculous turning a few loaves and fish into bread enough for an entire stadium, they began to say, surely this is the prophet. This is the long-awaited one who is coming into the world. Jesus knowing what was in their minds and in their hearts, Jesus knowing that they intended to come, make him a king. I would circle this in your Bible. They intended to come and make him a king by force. What did he do? He withdrew to a mountain by himself in order to pray. Seems a little bit surprising, doesn't it? They see he does this great miracle, and their response is, maybe he is the long-awaited prophet, the Messiah that we've been waiting for, who would be a king and come in and take down the Roman Empire by force. Yay, maybe he's finally here. And Jesus says, I ain't having that. And he left, and he went out to a mountainside to be alone with his father and pray. So they come and they see all that he's doing, and what they are hoping for, again, is this sense that God would establish a kingdom in Israel with Jesus, taking it by force, and Jesus says, no, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, and the battle is not against the Romans or any other group of people that you can think about. The battle is against yourself. Do you have faith to believe that? This is our primary battle. The primary battle that we face each and every day is not against other people out there. It's against the man in the mirror. Now, there's also a spiritual battle for sure against an enemy. But Jesus said, I did not come to establish an earthly kingdom. I came to establish a spiritual kingdom in which I would reign in the hearts of men and women and children who devote their lives to me. And this is really important for us to understand because there are some today 
who it seems even in the church almost want to supplant the Christian flag with the national flag. And what Jesus would say is if we do that, that is idolatry. That's a false worship because I did not come to be king over Israel or any other nation, he says. And so followers of Christ would always come back to this. My first and primary allegiance is to Christ and the kingdom that he is establishing made up of every different tribe and race and nation and tongue all over the world. That's my first allegiance. And my second allegiance is to my flag. And when they seek to make him a king by force, he just says, I ain't having that. I'm going to a mountainside to pray. I need to go be alone with my father. And so Jesus goes across the sea and up to the mountainside, and he's asking the father's will. He's needing the father's fellowship in this hour. It's been a long several days of healing and teaching and miracle working and tending to the needs of thousands. And he says, I just need to be with my father. And what you see here is this beautiful pattern of ministry that Jesus had, and I believe that he would establish for us as well. And this is the basic pattern. It goes like this. You might draw this on your outline. Jesus goes into the world where he sees harassed and helpless and poverty-stricken and hungry people and people in need of healing and all kinds of great pain. He's out in the world ministering to people in their need. And eventually, if you do enough of that, what happens? Anyone? You get tired, right? You get tired. So what's critical is that the rhythm is you always go back to the heart of God. And so Jesus is with the Father. That's just the Greek symbol for God. He's with the Father, meeting with the Father on a mountainside as he regularly did. He would draw away into the wilderness or to a lake. He had a regular pattern that we are to have that we would draw to our prayer chair, to our prayer closet, to our Bible, to be alone with God, to keep on embracing the truth of the gospel. And as we keep on embracing the truth of the gospel, then we can go back out into community which is exactly what Jesus does next. He is alone with the Father, and after being alone with the Father, then he goes to his disciples. And he sees his disciples out in the middle of the lake. It's called the Sea of Galilee, but it's about the size of Lake McConaughey. And so they're about three or four miles out, and Jesus sees them, and so he starts to walk toward them, minus the water skis. And as he gets near, they see him, and they are totally frightened. They say it's a ghost, and he says, do not be afraid, it is I. And they reach out their hands to him, and they pull him into the boat, and they chuckle. There goes Jesus again, walking on waves. And he enjoys fellowship with them for the remainder of the evening before they go to minister again on the other side of the lake. But the point is, it's out of fellowship with the Father that we then join community. We choose community out of fellowship with the Father, and then we go into the world and minister to a hurting world out of fellowship with the Father. And this is what we have to come back to all the time. You go from community back into being with Christ. And after you spend time well with Christ, then you have a renewed power for everything that God is calling you to across the seven days of each week. It's dependent on embracing the truth of the gospel, being with Christ on a consistent basis. Now fast forward here to verse 25, and they see him now on the other side of the lake, and once again, they're going to want to make him king, 
And we'll pick up the story there, verse 25 of chapter 6. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Okay, they came to him because they want some more free food. They got free food the day before, and they say, maybe he'll do that again. They gave me a banquet yesterday. Maybe I can get some more free food with them. They're like teenagers who heard there was a party at church and there might be pizza. So we're going to that one, okay? You, you gave us our fill, and then he goes on to say this. He answers, do not work for food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. I I think uh, perhaps on one reading you can see this and say, is Jesus kind of mad at them for asking for more food? I I don't think he is. Okay, he he cares about the poor. (laughs) He just did it. He just fed 15,000 people. He really cares. But he wants more. Okay? He cares about physical needs, and he cares about our emotional needs. And we can bring both to Christ on a regular basis. We should bring our emotional needs to Christ. He, he cared about the Samaritan woman just a couple chapters ago with her great need, and he canceled her shame and brought her into God's family. Okay, so he cares about our physical and our emotional needs, but Jesus sees in this moment the only reason they're coming to me is for another free meal. And so what he says to them is, I want you to come to me for me. And what he would say to us is we come to him for him. We don't come to Christ mostly for what he does for us. Yes, we would love for him to work a miracle on our behalf. Yes, we would love for him to bring a healing on our behalf. Yes, we would love for him to answer this particular prayer that we have been praying. But even more, we come to Christ because of who he is. We come to him for him, and then we are satisfied. Indeed, I think the main point out of all of chapter 6 is that we go to Christ because Christ alone can satisfy the cravings of our hearts. We're created with cravings that Christ intends to satisfy. Now, I want you to hold on to that idea. We are created with cravings that Christ alone will satisfy, but first we need to do a little bit of theology as we continue through this passage. There's two huge theological issues that this chapter presents, and the first one revolves around the question, who does God draw to himself? Who does God draw to himself? You really got to read the entire chapter, but this thorny theological issue comes up, and it's around this, how do we come to God the Father? And Jesus says, first, the Father must draw you to himself. Look at verse 40. My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now, how, how can he now say, I came down from heaven? 
Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. Now, the critical thing, though, that you must understand is this. Jesus does not teach. Christianity does not teach that you can just muster up belief in God on your own. Christianity does not teach that you can just become a Christian on your own. Christianity teaches this. You and I are so naturally selfish. You and I are so naturally lost in our own ocean of sinfulness that the only way we can come to God, the only way that we can become followers of Christ is that God would throw a life preserver out into the ocean and we would simply say thank you. That's it. That's the way we come to God. We don't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We don't muster up a whole lot of beliefs. We don't cross off all of our intellectual issues and say, now I'm a Christian. No, God, by his grace, presents himself to you through the cross of the Lord Jesus, and you say, yes, I will take that life preserver. Now, there's a couple of different ways of translating, well, what's going on here in verse 44. Verse 44 once again says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. Some people interpret that passage to say that God the Father selects some people to come to him, and the rest of people, he leaves them alone in the ocean of their own sinfulness, and he does not select them. And you can make that interpretation on the basis of the, this verse and a couple others in the scripture, you can provide a faithful expression of that from the scriptures that God leaves people alone in their own sinfulness and he selects some others to come into eternal life. That's one way of looking at this. Another way of looking at this passage is that God is the one who is drawing people to himself, and nobody can come to him unless the Father draws us to him, but the Father in his grace chooses to draw each person at different times on the basis of his prerogative. And that at one time or another, he has chosen to draw you. Perhaps even today, he is choosing to draw you. And he loves the entire world, and he actually wants the entire world. And they might believe that on the basis of passages like John 1 that says, I am the light of the world. The true light was coming into the world. The true light that gave light to every man was coming into the world. Or John 3, God so loved the world that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Or John chapter 12, where Jesus says, I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Or 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter 3, though, that says, uh, God is not willing that any of you or any of us on stage, that no one would perish. God is not willing that anyone would perish, but all would be repenting and come to eternal life in Christ Jesus. And I, for one, believe that latter perspective 
that God genuinely wants the, the entire world, and he's drawing individuals across the world of every tribe, race, and nation to himself, and we simply say, yes, I will receive that life preserver that you have sent out to me. Indeed, five times in chapter 6 alone, Jesus says, whoever would like this gift may come. And I think Jesus is genuinely saying, whoever. Whoever wants to eat may come. Whoever wants to drink may come. Whoever would like this gift of eternal life may have it. You must simply say yes to the free offer of God. Indeed, verse 51, as he wraps up this section, verse 51 goes like this, if I can find my pen. Sorry about that. As he wraps up this section, he says, here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which, what does it say? Which anyone anyone is invited to come and eat and not die. That this is a genuine offer from Jesus that you are welcome to come in. Will you receive the beckoning call of God, the free gift of God's grace that cannot be earned through any good deeds that we do, but freely given out of the mercy and the grace and the compassion of Christ. And perhaps... This is the reason that God has brought you to church for this morning, that maybe you haven't embraced that, and maybe this is the day that God himself is drawing you to himself, saying, will you come? Will you have me as I am? That's the first theological issue. Whom does God draw? Whom did he come for? The second theological issue goes like this. What is the bread And what is the wine or the juice in the communion celebration? What are they? Is it literally the body and blood of Jesus Christ, or are they representatives of the body and blood of Jesus Christ? And for that, we need to look at verse 51. I told you this is big theology, right? Okay, stick with me. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're very confused. And indeed, many people heard these words amongst early Christians, and they even accused Christians of being cannibals. Of course, they were not, but it was a misreading of this passage. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them." Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Okay, okay, what's Jesus talking about there? Like, these words are hard to swallow, aren't they? No pun intended, man. These are hard to swallow, What is he talking about here? We know that certain denominations have said that literally when you come to the communion table, the bread and the wine or the juice are miraculously transformed into literally the body and blood of Jesus Christ. 
Catholics believe that, that as they come to the communion table each and every week, that somehow, miraculously, they don't pretend to know how, the elements of bread and wine become, once again, they're transformed into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Lutherans similarly say that somehow those elements are both bread and wine, and at the same time they are Jesus' body and blood, miraculously coexisting in those elements at the same time. Okay, I don't want to criticize those denominations for trying to read these passages at face value. In fact, I would applaud them for seeking to read the Bible, in this case, at face value. But do you know that there is a face value and literal reading of the Bible that includes figures of speech and metaphors? Do you understand that? Like, Jesus uses figures of speech and metaphors of various kinds all over the four Gospels. And what I think is going on here is he's using a common idiom of the day in the Jewish culture that says flesh and blood means the whole person. So when someone said, eat my flesh and blood, what they're referring to is have the whole person. It's an idiom to describe you take in all of Jesus and all that he presents to you. You receive him as he is. Likewise, do you know that Jesus speaks in hyperbole sometimes? For example, he says things like, if your eye causes you to sin, then gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, then, okay, I don't see any bloody stumps in this room. You're not taking Jesus' words literally. Yeah, you are. You understand that he's giving a figure of speech called hyperbole to communicate the idea, take sin really seriously. Fight against it. He's not telling you literally to cut off your hand. He's saying fight against it to the point that it's painful in you. Jesus uses metaphors and figures of speech and hyperbole on a regular basis. So you got to read the Bible with those in mind. This is a good reason to take your English classes more seriously. You can save your limbs. You can understand your Bible better if you take your English class really seriously. Okay, I think... uh, What Jesus is talking about here, well, once again, is that we are to take Christ in completely. You don't go part way, well, when you become a Christian. You don't act one way in this setting and act another way in a church setting. He's saying be a single-minded person that is all in for Christ, that receives that life preserver, that understands Jesus gave his all for me, therefore the most natural response would be for me to give my all for him. That's what he's talking about. Indeed, at the Last Supper, Jesus says, it says, he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance. It's a memorial. It's a chance to pause and remember, in our case, every month, this is how great God's sacrifice was even for me. Thank you, Jesus. I give myself to you. I commit myself to following you. I receive your forgiveness once again for the areas that I failed over this past month. I keep short accounts with you, and I go all in for Christ. That's what we believe in the communion elements on a Sunday-to-Sunday basis, or in our case, a month-by-month basis. Does that make sense? Any questions? 
Okay, seeing none, we'll move on. Um, you know, th these are both issues, both these theological issues are issues on which the movement of churches that we are a part of believes we can, we can agree to disagree sometimes. We don't all have to believe the same things on these theological issues. I know that there are some in this church that disagree with me on a couple of the ideas that I just shared. I have a couple pastor friends that I am very, very good friends with who are wonderful, faithful Christian pastors, and they disagree with me on both of my positions on those two theological issues. And I respect their right to be wrong. <laughs> no, I respect them, and they respect me, and we disagree agreeably. And friends, I can't think of another time in my life that it's been more important to learn how to disagree agreeably than right now. I can't think of another time in my life as a churchman, as a pastor, where it's more important that Christians would understand how to love each other through their disagreements. And that we would understand what are the essentials of our faith and what are the non-essentials of our faith. And we have certain essentials of our faith, like Christ is Lord and no one else, nothing else is Lord. And the Bible is authoritative over our lives. And Jesus died for us when we were sinners. And the only way to him is his grace. And God is triune in these essentials that we would hold on to. There's a great statement that goes all the way back to St. Augustine that we hold on to strong in this church. And it goes like this. In essentials, unity. And those essentials that I just noted, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And so there's going to be some non-essentials like, how do I understand God's sovereignty and my free will? How do I understand the communion elements? How do I deal with political differences while within the church? Friends, those are all non-essentials. They're all non-essentials. We're in this room with other people who disagree with us on all of those things, and we can extend the right hand of fellowship to each other in spite of them. Amen? This is, I mean, this is who we are as the church, and the church has to reclaim this today. I'm so passionate about this because the church is losing its moral high ground because the church is fighting on non-essentials. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, love. In all things, charity. No matter what, we operate with charity toward one another. Now, these are some hard teachings. Would you agree? These teachings that Jesus goes through in John chapter 6 were hard enough that some of these people who had begun being disciples of Jesus start to leave. The scripture here says that after teaching these things, people were offended by what Jesus said and they started to leave. And Jesus knew as he was teaching that some people wouldn't be able to handle the things that he was saying and yet he chose to teach the truth anyway. And people begin to walk away. And then you see this amazing moment of vulnerability in verse 67. In which Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them, after seeing large crowds of people walking away, and you're going to see this again and again in the book of John, that as Jesus' teaching get harder, more people leave. And in this moment of vulnerability, Jesus turns to his inner 12 and he says, you don't want to leave too, do you? Like, do you hear the vulnerability in that? Are, are you going to leave me too? And uh, Peter answers him, Lord, where else would we go? Not the most ringing endorsement. Okay. <laughs> We're not sure where else to go but you. 
And he goes on to say, you, you hold the words of eternal life. I struggle with doubt sometimes. Uh, maybe you do too. Maybe there are words of Jesus that are harder for you to wrestle with. That's true for me. And so I come back to these words in this episode a lot. Where else would I go? Where else would I go? I've tried to be the self-made man, and it didn't work. I've tried to deal with my own sin, and it didn't work. I've studied the different religions of the world extensively, and I didn't find in them the words of eternal life. And none of their leaders ever conquered the grave. Only Jesus conquered the grave. So where else would I go? And I come back to that on a regular basis. There's nowhere else that I could go. I come back to you, Jesus, in spite of some of my doubts and in spite of some of my troubles. I, I know that you hold the keys to eternal life and you have changed the direction of my heart. Yeah, I'm still a mess in a lot of ways, but you have changed the trajectory of my heart. Where else would I go? And then that enables me to be offended a little bit more by the words of Jesus. We should read the Bible expecting at times to be offended by God's word. I love the way Tim Keller put it. He says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Did you hear that? If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. All right, Jesus wraps this up. We're going to wrap it up, though, this morning as we go to verse 30 to 35 here. And uh, this is our application for today. Look at verse 30 with me. And I'm going to invite the worship team to come up on stage now as we come to close this message. Uh, but look at verse 30. It says this. They asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you, that you are the bread of life? What, what sign are you going to give to us? Again, they came to him asking for more food. What will you do? Okay, we understand you just multiplied all those little loaves and fish and did enough to feed 15,000, but what, what will you do for us, Jesus? And they say, our, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Always give us this bread. And Jesus declared for them, and he declares for us right now, I am the bread. I'm the bread. I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger again. And he who drinks of me will never thirst. I'm the water you've been waiting for. I'm the bread that is meant to satisfy your soul. It's me. Stop looking elsewhere. It's not any possessions. It's not any pastimes. It's not any people. It's me. It's Jesus. And what he does here is truly remarkable. He's referencing back in the midst of manna coming down from heaven. He's helping the Israelites remember once again the Exodus story in which God appears to Moses and he says to Moses, I am who I am. You go and you tell the Israelites, I am have 
has sent you to them. You go tell the Egyptians, I am has sent you to them. I am who I am. And Jesus says, that's me. I'm the I am. I'm the one who was and is and is to come. And the simple truth is, my friends, Jesus is really nourishment for us. We'd be wise to ponder, how does Jesus intend to nourish our souls? How is he really bread for us? Because we are created with cravings that only Christ can satisfy. And part of the reason that we wrestle with such hopelessness and despondency and disappointment through so much of life, and I do too, is because I tend to look to other things to satisfy what only Jesus is meant to satisfy. And to the extent that I do that, I won't be satisfied. I'll keep having those soul-level cravings. And sometimes the problem is we are constantly feasting at the banquet of all this world has to offer, and therefore our appetite for Christ gets numbed. This is why you can get to know Christians, particularly in other nations who are impoverished, and they're living on beans and rice, and yet their soul is full. They're living on peanut butter and jelly, and yet they are more than satisfied because they allow themselves to be filled by God. And I'm wondering if sometimes I need to do that. Feast a little bit less on the banquet of this world and get myself a little bit more into the scriptures and spend a little bit more time on prayer walks and spend a little bit more time going to the lake and just being alone with my father and spend a little bit more time just meditating on choice words of the scripture and worshiping God for who he is and not expecting him to do something for me, but just being with him as he is and enjoying him and allowing my heart to be filled by being with him, being satisfied by him. This is what he offers. He offers soul-level satisfaction. May we come to him and be filled. The Lord Jesus, we declare you are the great I am. We're going to sing about it in just a minute, but that's who you are. You're the great I am. The great creator, the alpha, the omega, the one who was, the one who is, the one who always will be. And you say that you are bread for our souls. You intend to satisfy us in a way nothing else can. May we come to you and feast. May we enjoy you as a first priority in our lives. Our hearts are most satisfied when we are satisfied in you. And so we just declare, God, that it's you we need. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that will fill us. And we're sorry, God, for the ways that we get satisfied too much by the banquets of this world with our pastimes and with other people and with so many pleasures that are always at our disposal in 21st century life. We're sorry, God, for the way we put you on the back burner. And we want to live into what you're saying here, that to eat your 
body and drink your blood is to take in all of you and to be satisfied by you. And I know oftentimes we don't, and we're the less for that. So Father, would you please awaken our hunger again, that we would be satisfied with the great I am, the one who conquered death and lives forevermore. It's to you we pray, and to you we sing this morning. Amen.